I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. Hook and Jurassic Park Revisited and Schindler's List. So we're going to talk about Hook from 1990, and I don't think we necessarily need to talk about it for too long because we have already covered this one. Much like Jurassic Park and The Lost World, we have done these two Spielbergs, and those will be... Um, I'm going to be re-uploading those to the main feed so people can reacquaint themselves with uh, our... Well, actually, no. I don't think I'll be re-uploading the Hook episode because we were fairly disparaging of it, and it was. it seemed to be mainly because we were irritated that the Jason Isaacs, Jeremy Sumter version of Peter Pan always gets ignored while everyone has very fond childhood memories of this. Because they weren't kids in 2003, they were kids in 1990. One was there when they were kids, the other one wasn't, and it's it's really a, um, a matter of uh, the right place at the right time rather than making a qualitative statement on Peter Pan adaptations. Indeed. Also, the 2003 version is not really geared to strike at the heart of kids hmm I wonder if that might be the case maybe it's uh, uh, Hook is more child accessible Mm. and Peter Pan 2003 seems more to remind adults what it was like to know about Peter Pan when they were kids yeah huh huh that might account for why it kind of fell by the wayside the children were not blown away by it or maybe they were just you know loving Harry Potter at that point and Peter Pan just couldn't cut it mm. anyway <clears throat> Hook 1990 first off I'll say watching it on DVD all these years and videotape before that I have been grossly misinformed as to how rich and colourful this film actually is and should be the uh, sets and costumes and colours and just general body of Neverland and the surrounding environs is uh, rapturous, probably the best way of putting it. It draws you in and uh, says, what if Peter Pan? Hmm. The textures were what got me. The textures in this are absolutely amazing. From feather to mud to bark to rags to... Peter's costume, Hook's costume. Everybody's costume, Rufio's hair... Fabric on dresses, the the tinsel in Tinkerbell's ball dress. It just everything looks like you could reach out and touch. It. I gotta say, DVD is fucking murder on films. Like it is, it's a it's a side road that movies went down, and were sort of shunted into this low res fuck like by today's standards, low res, low definition, standard definition, kind of cul de sac of quality, mm. and. It takes a loving restoration to bring them back. I've said this before, I'll say it again, but it killed Hook. And this HD transfer brought it back to life. And the thing about DVDs is, it's, like I said, it's a cul-de-sac. You can't, you can up-res a DVD, but you're never going to make it look like a cinematic experience. Mm. It's It was digitized at a low level, and it's never going, it's going to look 480p mm. and... At best, upscaled, it will look like a... Colour photocopy? <sighs> crushed Blu-ray, I mm. suppose. Because okay. you've got to go back to the source. You've got to go back to an original print. Or at least a digital intermediary, which is where they scan either the original print or the interpositive, which is basically a workable, usable copy of the original print, into tens of thousands of sequential high-resolution images which become the highest quality digital source file from then on. And I am continuously impressed with how much it is possible to bring to life older films in higher definitions. So yeah, this was the most alive that Hook had ever looked to me since I missed it in the cinema. And I never like I didn't I never watched this when I was a, a kid, so when watching it as an adult uh, it always kind of, I was always approaching it from sort of adult Peter's point of view and being irritated by it. Mm. And originally we were going to get Chris on and his sister to uh, to talk about this one because this was going to be powered by 
you know, childhood memories of this thing like that. Chris Chipman and and, uh, and his sister and I would imagine Bob probably to some degree uh, uh, share a, a fondness uh, for this one. We weren't able to ra- uh, wangle that in the end. COVID got in the way of everyone's plans. Uh, so we're just doing it, you and I. And, and I will say it's not wholly brought to me in terms of, you know, this is the Peter Pan that I love. I still did find myself sort of pulling away. Interestingly, the third act sort of lost me more than the first two. Mm. Like once, once you lose Robin Williams as an adult, mm. when, and he's, once the tumbling starts, yeah, and uh, and it's all about fun and sprightly, childlike antics. I lost my ability to connect with it, mm. which um, is not so much a shortcoming on the uh, the part of the film as. Uh, I don't have it in me to really appreciate food fights mm. and um, uh, like a kid rolling into a ball and rolling down the a gangplank to knock pirates aside like bowling pins. It's like, mm. eh, it's f- fine. It's not like I didn't enter into the spirit of it. Mm. Is it okay if I ask you about your findings on Hook? Of course. Um, I honestly can't remember much of what we said about it last time. Um, I do know that it was before Robin Williams passed. Yeah, I think we sat on it for a long time. We didn't want to put it out because we recorded it before he uh, went. And then afterwards, it was much like the Mrs. Doubtfire one. When do we put this out? Yeah. Um, I don't know to what extent that the losing of him has affected my perception of it. I do know I enjoyed it a lot more this time uh, than I did the last time we saw it. It's still not... Helps that it's not seen in close proximity with the 03 Peter Pan, though. Yes. Yeah. It's still... I was just going to say, it's definitely far from being my favourite interpretation of Peter Pan, but I can see the qualities of it. I can see how it's got a a slant on it and a take on it which logically enough considering the source feels like an americanized mythology of what is a very english story originally or what what feels to me to be a very english story originally um and and i in no way mean that to be disparaging i don't I, that's not a bad thing it's just different jm barry was scottish but everything about it being set in london made it feel english yeah and i really appreciated maggie smith one thing lyra pointed out actually it is completely absent the indians they get mentioned once, mm. uh, and it's in a context of, let's go and hunt some Indians, we'll shoot them with Long Tom. Really? Yeah, Smee says it to uh, Captain Hook. Does he? Oh, okay. Uh, Tinkerbell mentions or, something. Or maybe Captain Hook says it to Smee, but it's in that conversation. Okay, Tinkerbell says something about adventuring with pirates and Indians as well, but it's it's in one of her uh, speeches where she's rattling off a load of stuff all at once. But they're they're not present which was i think probably the smart choice in terms of sidestepping how do we put this in without being horrendous yeah but overall i think the the feeling of oh another thing's happened in between the times we uh, the uh, film pan came mm. and went and did we see it yeah we did oh, okay. it's utterly forgettable remember utterly that it existed forgettable. we haven't seen wendy have we no that's not out yet Oh, no, no, it came and went. Oh, did it? Oh, okay. But it's a small indie film which uh, uses the uh, fantasy as a um, mirror for the reality. Yeah. So which is might be right up our street. I like yeah. about the 2003 version. Um, but, yeah, I think generally I, it, felt, it felt sweet and well-meaning. And while I, I do find that whole theme of... You know the problem with dads? They just work too hard. That was prevalent throughout 90s movies. It it really is. It's such a... And this is from a woman whose dad worked too hard and was away all the time. (laughs) Mm. That strikes me as being a very 90s sentiment, late 80s, 90s sentiment, because it affected the children who grew up in the 60s and 70s so much. 
And I think, I'm, and this is not me saying that obviously it doesn't affect children further down the line, but I think the further we go along, the less and less it becomes a case of, well, you know how to solve this. Dads need to throw their mobile phones out the window and just, you know, get on with spending time with their kids. Jingle all I the way, it was know. the same. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. You missed my to, karate belt, Dad. I don't know how to analyse that in a modern context. And, and the only... Um, examples that I have of modern fatherhood are you and our other friends who have children and they are all very hands-on very hands-on dads yeah yeah but I mean it's it's simple enough that this as a premise throughout the 90s when I think there was an anxiety and this includes Mrs. Doubtfire as well. There was an anxiety about the instance of divorces Mm. uh, rising and how more and more families were no longer resembling nuclear families. So the, I suppose the pressing urgency upon dads at the time was watch out dads. Because if you... If you neglect your sons, neglect they'll your sons. to be criminals. What? Really? <laughs> what do you think the Lost Boys are? They had skateboards, for goodness sake. This oh, was this, see. this seems like a, a logical paranoia for that time. Okay. Uh, well, it was supposed to be a, you know, look after your kids and therefore your marriage will be successful as a result of that. Mm. You know, make sure that you're there and present in their lives. And I, I completely understand why that would be something that they would push in the 90s as a way of... I suppose, not forcibly, encouraging a bringing back together of families that might be sort of drifting Mm. a little. Yeah. Do you know how you encourage that? Have a decent minimum wage and have parents not have to work five jobs between them just to keep the house going. There's only so much Hollywood can do about that. Yeah, I know. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think they thought that deeply into it so much as this was a recurring trope in the same way that kids versus adults was a a recurring trope thanks to Home Alone. And it was like, ah, we can get these adults splattered in the face with pies. Well, this even has a little bit of that. All grown-ups are pirates. Yep, there is that. There were a couple of things that caught me off guard uh, this time around, which I just really uh, got to me this time. It was the when Wendy turned up and she was like, hello, boy. There was a, um, a wonderful kind of magic surrounding Maggie Smith's version of Wendy. She's, um, I pointed out, she's basically the old lady from Titanic. Like, I was the original. And, uh, you know, this sort of bridge between the original events and the things that are happening right now in the 90s. Mm. She also felt older in this than she does as McGonagall. Honestly, I feel like they may have put some Back to the Future makeup on her to make her look older than she was in 1990. She's supposed to be 90 years old, and she definitely wasn't in 1990. Otherwise, she'd be 120 years old now. Okay, in theory it is possible for the human body to last 120 years. If somebody told me Maggie Smith was 120, I would believe it. <laughs> <laughs> Just in the sense that she seems magically ageless. True. Uh, she's 85 years old now, okay. so she's five years younger than she's playing in, in Hook. In that film. Okay. okay. But... And I say right now, because I feel like we're going to lose her any time. Like 85 years old is a very ripe age for an old lady. So I felt the very tenderness towards her. But I also felt that there was a dramatic hook there, so to speak. When she starts to fail at the um, uh, uh, the presentation and, and, you know, ooh, and starts to have a flutter as the children are kidnapped by Hook, I was thinking, this film doesn't really have that bittersweetness. Mm. And that Wendy should perhaps fall very uh, ill and, and you know uh, into a um, unconsciousness or barely consciousness. And maybe she's a bit able to talk to Peter at the beginning, mm-hmm. which facilitates his breakdown mm-hmm. and everything that happens throughout Hook in ne- quote unquote Neverland. You know, could be happening in his mind, yeah. or um, could be absolutely real events that are happening to both him and his children. And again. It, it, the narrative of the film says it definitely did happen because you've got, you know, 
toodles flying away at the end. And obviously the kids share the delusion of their father. Uh, but then if at the end he'd had to say goodbye to Wendy and just let go of that part of himself and actually, you know, you know to, to live would be an awfully big adventure. To say goodbye to a 90-year-old woman and just to sort of like lay to rest that part of Peter Pan, that's really sad. Instead, rather unwisely, I think, they decide to kill a child. Rufio, this, mm. la- this lost boy leader, gets yeah. killed just so Pan can feel some some kind of loss and then they give the old the sword to Thudbutt who by the way would make a great leader and is a wonderful cherub-cheeked boy mm. but isn't it better to say goodbye to an old mother figure than to kill a child <laughs> you know that it's the bittersweetness is is aimed wrong mm. there in that regard although i really did love um the uh, the actress playing wendy's uh, speech to him about that you have a very short period of time when your kids want your attention and soon they won't. And I think before when we talked about Hook, Lyra wanted my attention all the time and now she doesn't want my attention all the time. So that may have blindsided me too. And so that aspect of it, I really held on to. But again, I don't, I I don't, I feel like Rufio would have been better going through an arc Mm. where by the end he himself has kind of grown up a bit but has sort of plateaued into a point where he's like I can carry on leading these lost boys but I feel like there's going to be some changes in Neverland Mm. at this point one thing like we're going to like as it represents Pan himself Mm. you know moving on to somewhere new we're not just going to keep repeating this yeah well they've banished Hook so there there have been significant shifts anyway yeah killing Hook is a huge deal yeah Um, but the uh, one thing that did strike me about the the scene where Rufio dies, and and this is entirely me reading in, too much into it. There's, this is not really indicated by what happens in the film. But when he says to Peter, "I wish I had a dad like you," it 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 the way it struck me was a little bit like Rufio is older than the others. He is that little bit more foot towards adulthood Mm. and by effectively sacrificing himself stepping up and fighting hook to protect the other boys he is he's kind of past that point where he needs a dad like peter he was on his way to becoming a dad like peter but like i said the the, it's it's far too thin a scene for that really to Mm. have been the intended connotation but for some reason that just seemed to to kind of hit Mm. me also, this time, I really appreciated uh, Dustin Hoffman as Hook. Mm. I think I did before, but the, the, the just the entrance and the like, you know, the the, the pageantry surrounding it. Now, it's it's irritating a few times, but the actual the like the whimsical manner of speaking mm. and the back and forth with um, his theatricality um, did because we've seen it recently put me in mind of um, Robert De Niro playing Captain Shakespeare in Stardust yeah. I mean mm. obviously they're, they're not even remotely similar characters but the fact that they've got these uh, um, legends of Hollywood like 60s and 70s Hollywood playing these over the top slightly past it pirates mm. <laughs> And with this being uh, effectively a sequel to Peter Pan, it also feels like an oversight to kill him at the end. Mm. To just go, right, and then we killed Hook, and then Thudbuck got to be leader. Okay, so what's going to happen next? I don't know, maybe Toodles will go back there? Some some new adventure. Well, doesn't, Pete, doesn't Hook die at the end of Peter Pan? Doesn't the crocodile get him? Yeah. But, well, no, in the original cartoon, he runs away from the crocodile. In the 03 version... Uh, he's just old, done, and the crocodile eats him and he surrendered to mm. death there. Right. But if we're going to come back and hook the there again, mm. then, uh, like, the fact that he's old, like, they keep pointing at this, like, old, decrepit man who has to wear a wig and he's just, he represents kind of not growing old gracefully. Well, and- he's, yeah, I mean, he's kind of the flip side of Wendy, if you think about it, because she's ageing, but she is, she recognises the importance of hanging on to the the youthful energy and the imagination that, that keeps a part of you young, no matter how old you get. Mm. Um, whereas Hook is decay. He is somebody who is trying to keep things exactly the way they've always been, um, to prevent himself from getting any older. Ultimately, he is the inevitability that Pan would 
have become if he continued to insist he wouldn't grow up? Honestly, thinking about it, there's so much hatred between them. Wouldn't it have been better if Hook had bite Because he keeps going, oh, I'm done, Smee, I'm done. You know, I'm going to kill myself, Smee. And there's this hilarious scene where he's going to commit suicide. And he doesn't because Smee prevents him. And it's like, mm, let's play a little fast and loose with self-slaughter for laughs. Unfortunate. Um, but wouldn't it have been better if by the end, like he's all fired up for it. And by the end, he's like, oh, there's no point to this. You know, Peter Pan, you're old, you've gone off, you've had kids. There's no fight left in me anymore. Mm-hmm. And Peter had basically said, what are you talking about? You're Captain Hook. You know, these kids quake in their boots at the sound of you. And he gone, you know... I think I am about ready for another adventure. Go after those lost boys! And just Pan himself had, as a parting gift, revitalized Hook to remain this yin to the yang of the lost boys. And just to, I suppose, keep... If you're going to keep Neverland going, Mm, then symbolize the rebirth of it and Pan himself seeding that. As opposed to just turns up... Hook kills Rufio, Pan kills Hook. All right, then. What? That's us. Are we off now, Dad? Yep. Why? Have Have a guess. guess. (laughs) (laughs) Just, uh, yeah, two murders. And it it just feels like um, the wrong deaths for the wrong reasons. You know, maybe Rufio kills Hook and becomes the new Hook. Are we evolving Neverland and doing something different? Or is this... What once happened before will happen again. I don't know. It, it, it's, it's still a, a very enjoyable film, and it's got a uh, an energy and a sprightliness and a youthful vigour to it, which means that it will, for generations to come, still delight children and uh, make parents misty-eyed. Mm. Uh, and that statement about, you know, you, they only want your attention for a little while could not be truer. Mm. So, to a degree... That thing about, you know, be present for your kids is actually on the money, but it needed to be done, you know, in, 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 a, in a way that feels valid rather than 90s Hollywood movies scolding dads for doing business. Well, it's just, I think what I did me, a business. What bothers me about it is the way it is usually framed is that uh, these, these dads just absolutely love their high-powered jobs, and that's uh, and that they prefer that um, to the the company of um, small children, <laughs> which uh, I, just I, I don't know how you shift that into a suddenly they have a change of heart and decide that they actually much prefer the company of small, loud, annoying, and <laughs> baseball playing children, <laughs> children. Oh, so you know what? Uh, I was actually not the least bit interested in kids stuff, but then you threw red shit all over me, and now suddenly I'm interested. So, what do we got? More throwing stuff around? Okay, then, bang around. It's very, <laughs> it's very rare that you have a film, and they they exist, but it's very rare that you have a film where the point is that the the parent in question actually engages with the imagination of the child, which mm. is the point. That's the, the point where you come together with kids is you acknowledge the way they think and you join in with the with their perspective on the world and their perception. I'd like to see Pixar's meta take on Peter Pan thinking mm. about it because they wouldn't do it straight and no. you know that. They'd do something else like the fairies run a business that's like a... Factory line and it's just that stalks and the boss baby. Yeah. Okay, you know what? Let's not let's not <laughs> let's entertain not these notions. Uh, okay, so either way, Hook is uh, better now than it ever has been uh, for me, and I'm very glad I got the Blu-ray. I think the Spielberg season is has been um, wholly positive in this regard. Now on to our second spoonful of sugar as we revisit Jurassic Park. (laughs) 
Okay, so Jurassic Park. We were kind of on the fence, the electric fence, as to whether we would go back and do this one uh, because we gave it so much time the first time around. But it's one of my favorite films ever. And uh, Spielberg's one of my favorite directors as a result of this. Um, it feels special still now, maybe even more so. I don't know. Like it, 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 this was one of the most enjoyable times I've ever watched it. A uh, couple of reasons. One, the new TV. Thank you very much to everyone who uh, uh, organized commissions with us. Jurassic Park looks phenomenal on this thing. And two, with my recent obsession, fixation, hobby of uh, checking out and regrading movies, uh, color grading. Career skill. Career skill. <laughs> okay, it's uh, another thing that I've taught myself to do, which is basically to rebalance um, movies that might have uh, slightly unbalanced color palettes. So I, it started with The Empire Strikes Back, the 2011 Blu-ray, which is a very blue look to it. And I managed to make that look natural. And it, I, it's, there's a phenomenal film underneath and I was very happy with that. And I thought, well, what if I do that with The Fellowship of the Ring? And what if I do that with the uh, uh, the Aliens Blu-ray? It has a very kind of greenish wash to it. And I'm finding all kinds of like natural skin tones where they weren't before. Since recording this, I regraded Guardians of the Galaxy, Age of Ultron, Winter Soldier and Civil War. Going against the slightly desaturated, slightly greenish softer contrast so you don't really get many instances of true black on screen marvel phase two color grading template and the movies look so gorgeously clear and crisp and lifelike underneath i wish you folks could see these and jurassic park uh, received an orangey warm palette change for the 2015 uh, 3D Blu-ray release but only on the 3D one so I've never seen it so I was just looking at these pictures and going that looks very, like really warm Like, how, how can this look any good and then I thought well what if I colour incorrect Jurassic Park the, the 2011 Blu-ray which is very easy to come by and just see what we can find under there and strangely making it makes it a little bit redder, but at the same time, if you up the, the vibrancy, then the, it's not that the blues and the greens lose their luster. If anything, the, the, the green and red uh, land cruisers that they go in look more tangible and, and, and real and fresh off the line than I've ever seen them before. Mm. I was thinking that the, uh, the greenery, mm. as they're approach, and, yeah, the- looked a little bit less jungle-like and a little bit drier, a little bit more Hmm. um, uh, sort of scrub vegetation. But then when it starts to rain, you get all of that lushness back again. So... And, uh, yeah, the um, basically, if, if you can watch Jurassic Park in 3D, it's a whole different experience, if, if not only for the 3D, but for the up-in-the-colour values, which they did to offset the loss of colour that you experience while watching in 3D. This is the thing that I was about to say when you were talking about it. Technically, nobody's seen it in that version because they'd be wearing 3D glasses, which means that oh, the colour would be different. Well, either way, I'm uh, I'm keeping this. I'm going to press this to a Blu-ray disc, and like uh, next time I want to watch Jurassic Park for things like close-ups on people's faces. You know, you get really good like skin tone to it, and at the same time, like craggy, pockmarked faces. Like uh, 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 this usually happens if the Blu-ray is good to begin with. And, you you know, sometimes, like, if something's kind of covered in blue, you can't differentiate between two different shades or two different colors of thing. Um, so, for example, Yoda just looked like kind of a blue blob. But when you naturalize that color palette, uh, he's much more of a vibrant green. And the little wispy yellow hairs and gray hairs that cling to his head are much more visible because they'd have been kind of a pale bluish on blue before. So, yeah, color regrading is kind of my thing at the moment. I don't know how long I'm going to keep going on it. It's it's very memory intensive on my computer and it's quite time consuming, but it's an inexpensive hobby. It certainly is. Yeah. Just need to, you know, uh it's it's more just about the 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 effort that is invested in it. Mm. Anyway, Jurassic Park. I think I noticed because we've been doing the Spielberg season, I'm now more aware of who everyone is. 
um, and it's obviously, key. yeah, and, and doing the, um, the the Star Wars technical side of things over the years. All of these names on this list, the dream team that came together to make this thing. You got Michael Kahn, his editor since like Jaws time. John Williams, obviously his uh, composer since Jaws time, and one of his greatest. Um, scores of all time. You got Kathleen Kennedy in producing, Dennis Murin, uh, who made the Attack Walkers walk in uh, uh, The Empire Strikes Back. You got Phil Tippett, who was supposed to be Dinosaur Wrangler, but he had them raptors loose in the kitchen. No, he's he did amazing work, raptor wrangling. Uh, and then you got Stan Winston, the guy who made the Terminators move. Uh, and so, like, these geniuses that you know bringing the dinosaurs to life you got ben burt on sound you know and dean kunde doing the uh, the cinematography this is one of the greatest crews of all time there is a reason jurassic park feels special because everyone was just at the top of their game and there's this joyful excitement and exotic feel to this film the whole thing i'm sure i've said this before but it's like going on vacation to dinosaur island you go with alan and ellie and then you come back covered in filth but alive also you may have picked up two stray children <laughs> Uh, so, so yeah, it was just really exciting to watch it this time on this massive TV with, uh, you know, OLED handling of the blacks and the, the crisp, vibrant new colour palette and the, the, the amber light in the background sort of projecting the, 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 the moods onto the wall. And, yeah, it, this was one of the most enjoyable filmic experiences of the year for me so far. I think Jurassic Park is just one of those films that, that doesn't get old. And that as long as you space out your viewings of it, will always feel significant. And uh, every other subsequent sequel ha- just pales in comparison. It's barely even worth comparing the sequels to the original. You just compare the sequels against each other. I do hold out hope that, much like Dark Fate, there'll be another Jurassic film that comes along that's actually worthy of standing alongside this first one. You know, you live, you live in hope. But uh, at the moment, with Jurassic World being on the way, like the third, ver- the third version of that will be dinosaurs in your back garden. The issue was always that dinosaurs were rare and precious. Now they're going to be everywhere, kind of like lightsabers in the prequels, you know? Mm, yeah. I don't know. I feel like if... It's been a while, like, you know, you, you could start off by, like, showing dinosaurs being everywhere, and then you could cut to a few years later where they've been hunted back to near extinction, and then suddenly dinosaurs are precious again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that sounds feasible. Okay, so what did you feel like what, uh, in Jurassic Park today? Watching it? I agree with you thoroughly on the visuals. It looked immense on the TV. Uh, it was the the thing that struck me, and this is something that that normally just bypasses me completely. It's not something I notice, but the um, the grain of the film and how that interacts with the textures uh, that are going on. Because I I tend to think about when you talk about film grain, I tend to think of it as making it look a little bit staticky, mm. so it would actually like fuzz up what you're looking at. But it's it's the opposite, really. It just gives you this sense of everything well there's a softness to to film which Mm. digital doesn't have yeah um but it just it gives you this sense of everything being touchable rather than flat Mm. um which i mean you know and this is not to say that all digital does this you know some digital can really give you some depth of field and and a sense that you're uh experiencing it but i think when it looks a little bit too real um, like that more real than real it's like it's like soap opera effect but just with a with the, the effect of the the screen it just mm-hmm. and i i have this issue with um uh, 3d as well it makes things look smaller to me not bigger because i'm, I'm acutely aware of the fact that it's all contained within the rectangle mm. of the the viewing screen um but the the size of this is just incredible everything feels as though there's more to it like i think the the trick that spielberg really got with this was you show a flash there's an eye here there's a claw there there's a the end of a tail and it just it it's like the describing an elephant a piece at a time it it gives you a sense of something that's bigger than you've actually seen but you are left feeling like you've seen the big thing even though you haven't really 
I'm still amazed that like uh, they're very careful and sparing about how and where you get the CG dinos. You get the um, uh, the the practical shots up close. You can see the legs, and they've got this sort of mottled skin. And you know when they they're moving, you know, like there's a sense of power behind them. The raptors felt really heavy today, mm-hmm. uh, but and in a good way. It in helps the- that a lot of the time when there's a practical shot going on, they do what they can mm. to get a human in and interacting with the thing mm. to show that it can be interacted with. But by and large, the, uh, the the times when they have to go to CG and have a fully formed raptor or T-Rex in the screen, mm. uh, they only go for a few seconds mm. and they never allow the camera to focus on it so that you're expecting a measure of uh, uh, tangibility that is exactly the same as the solid objects Mm. there. Yeah. There's two CG scenes that I can think of that I am aware they are CG when I'm looking at them. Mm -hmm. Everything else is just blended so impressively that it, it doesn't even occur to me. Like on one level, I know it's a CG shot, but on the other level, I'm like, no, I don't care. Um, but the, there's two that do um, kind of stick out a little bit. And one is when you first get the encounter with the Brontosaurus. Brontosauruses? Brontosauri. Brontosauri. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> and the, They're the ones that, The Brachiosaurs, thank you. The ones that, are in, that some of them are in the lake and some of them are on the hillside. Mm. And they're, as in one of the panning shots, something's not quite on with the colour the the it's it's nothing to do with the uh how well the cg works it's just the fact that the dinosaurs are a little bit paler than the landscape mm-hmm. and it just makes you aware that it's they are that not chroma. part of the same thing yeah. um and the other one is the scene where lex falls down through the ceiling mm. Um, and the raptor leaps up to grab her. And yeah. I honestly think the only reason that my brain reads that as CG is because I've seen the behind-the-scenes bit where they show you how they made that shot mm. and layered it up. So I've I've seen the strings, and it's hard to unsee yeah. them. So it was like the 1993 equivalent of Heidi Moneymaker, the uh, stunt woman, falling through the floor, and then they pasted uh, her face onto the... Uh, Lex's yeah. face onto the, that stunt lady. Once you've seen it, it's, it's hard to take it back. Mm. But it's such an incredibly, like, gripping moment. Like, this film just rockets along. It has just the right amount of build-up and just the right amount of, oh, no, escalation, and then just the right amount of, we got to get the hell out of here. And it's it's balanced just right for kids, I feel, for for sort of, you know, the family level of of, uh, cinema going, because the the characters are all fantastic. Um, And you could argue that it's a little bit naive in terms of how few people actually get killed. Mm, It's still only a PG. Yeah. Although it's a PG-13 in America. I I just feel like they they have a a range of people in this and it's fun to see them uh, bouncing off each other and, um, you know, riffing on on how they all deal with the, Mm. the situation. It feels very... Realistic. It feels very uh, like, yes, you can imagine that if this was going on, some people would act like Ellie and some people would act like Alan and some people would act like Ian. Ian. And, you know, but, but they're not all, they don't all just suddenly spontaneously start running in the same direction, narratively speaking, which I think is something that the, uh, the later... Uh, Jurassic World movies yeah. did suffer from people bit. act dumbly. Yeah, and... it's it's there's a, there's a a distinct feeling when your characters are doing exactly what the script requires them to do. It's mm. not necessarily that it's wrong, and it's not necessarily that they're doing things that real people wouldn't do. It's that they're doing exactly what the script act asks of them and nothing else. So mm. they just feel a little bit flat. Like they're devices for the yeah, story. Exactly. Everybody in this feels like a person. With an internal life, yeah. yeah. An exaggerated person in the case of Nedry and a couple of the others, but a, a real person. Uh uh uh. You didn't say the, the magic, magic word. word. Uh, 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 uh uh uh. I noted this time around that uh, uh, Tim uh, he has a, a blue shirt on and an ascot just like Dr. Grant. And uh, Lex had like a pink and, and uh, purple ensemble that's not a million miles from Ellie's uh, pink and blue. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to uh, just kind of 
equate the two just to make it make it feel um, more to uh, Alan like uh, you know these are the trial runs for little versions of you yeah there's lots of little touches that I noticed this time as well like um, I mean this is part of the characterization and I'm, I've commented on this before but I really like the fact that uh, Ellie and Lex in particular are uh, very human and very afraid when it, it's rational that they would be afraid but they never dissolve into screaming heaps in the corner mm. um, and even all right at one point Lex, Lex is like he left us he left us but she plays that hysteria pretty well yeah. um, and and is, Alan is able to talk her down from it suggesting exactly. that that uh, you know it's you can get to people that yeah way. there's there's no sense of um, you know girls are a mess when they're put in a, a stressful situation yeah we could discuss sexism in survival situations when I get back. Exactly. Um, and the other thing was that when they're in the... And I, I pointed this out to you. When they're in the uh, lobby of the visitor centre and the raptors are coming after them and then the T-Rex appears, they group together with Tim in the middle and it's quite a nice little dynamic, this little sort of family. The, the fact that Lex is a bit older means mm. that she's starting to take on more adult responsibilities which she's demonstrated her capability in the uh, computer room Tim is the littlest he's also injured he'd be the one the raptors go for first absolutely yeah yeah our dog has just figured out how to open doors <laughs> so yeah I mean like I don't think we need to really sum up uh, Jurassic Park anymore uh, just that it's it is impossible that I could love this film more this year 27 years after I saw it the first time around, but somehow I do. It's riven with quality. And uh, David Kep's script, can, you know, considering how he managed to adapt a very dense, very dry book from uh, Michael Crichton, um, you know, nonetheless very imaginative and, and like, here's how the science could actually work. Uh, you know, the, the book was an absolutely invaluable component to it, whether I like his style or not. Mm. Crichton uh, helped with the screenplay as well. Oh yeah? yeah, it was both of them, Crichton mm. and Kep. And we've already said that Crichton was capable of writing and directing Westworld. So, mm. you know, the guy definitely had talent in the cinematic sense. Yeah. I think he's uh, he's a lot bleaker than Spielberg. Spielberg. Spielberg, sorry. Spielberg? I'm so tired. He's <laughs> a lot bleaker than Spielberg. Yeah. Um, which is why I love the, the Spielberg's Jurassic Park because he was like, well, what if John Hammond was Walt Disney and we didn't punish him? Yes. <laughs> what if he didn't get eaten by a thousand small creatures? Just ten compies. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, that's uh, that's Jurassic Park. No, it's my, it's my still my favourite Spielberg. I think the uh, the, uh, the uh, it's not necessarily the highlight of this particular trip because I knew it was going to be great, but it's been the most pleasurable so far to visit. And now we come to it, folks. The real reason I released this episode as a main event. The two revisits that you just heard were intended to be quick reviews for the Patreon, same as our shows on Duel, The Sugarland Express, 1941, Close Encounters, The Twilight Zone, The Movie, The Color Purple, Always, and a bunch of upcoming Spielbergs from the 2000s. But when we got to Schindler's List... What was said and our experience with it was, I believe, weighty enough to deserve being heard by as many people as possible. It is both short and very, very hard going. So we gave you these two spoonfuls of sugar first, allowing you to derive some comfort and gain a little extra strength to get through this. By all means switch off if you think this is going to be too upsetting. We will see you next week. Otherwise, here it is. Okay, Schindler's List. Released in November 1993, just five months after Jurassic Park gave us a summer of dinosaurs, Steven Spielberg was 47 years old. Um, back when we covered Temple of Doom, 
uh, I said that it was one thing to watch this film, Temple and Raiders, in a row, and just to enjoy them both. And people have been saying, hey, I like Temple of Doom, buddy. And it's like, I'm, I'm sure you do, but on a technical scale, it's... It's a completely different kettle of fish to go from the uh, the, the the technical excellence of, of Raiders and just everything that it does right, uh, and then to move on to Temple and find it severely lacking. Um, it is one thing to watch Schindler's List. It is quite another to watch it and know that every scene you're watching, you've got to remember to some degree, or at least store part of it away so that you can talk about it professionally. That is something I wouldn't ask anyone to do. That's like, if you want to talk about Schindler's List, do it, but this is not something that is, it is too big an ask. <clears throat> it's not something that is done unless you have a personal quest to do it. So if you've not seen it before, it is the tale of two Nazis. One is named Amon Goethe, played by uh, Rafe Fiennes, and he's an ice-cold psychopath who literally cannot understand or comprehend compassion. And he sees all non-Aryans as less than human beings, which is, of course, ironic because he must become a glassy-eyed wraith devoid of humanity to appropriate such a diseased mentality. He organizes the rehousing of the population of Krakow in Poland. First, the population are moved into overcrowded ghettos, then labor camps, which then give way to death camps. The second major character is a rich German named Oskar Schindler, played by Liam Neeson, who runs an enameling factory at first he exploits an enslaved workforce of the people of Krakow and then over time begins to comprehend the horrors being wrought upon these people, which we have to see played out on screen over three and a quarter hours. Eventually, Oscar starts to bring in factory workers by name, drafting a list organised with his Jewish secretary, Itzhak Stern, played by Ben Kingsley. Oscar's desire becomes to save as many as possible from this slow but inexorable execution at the hands of the fascists. I had a question for both of us. I've got a lot of answers written down, but I don't expect you to have to say anything because it is, again, a big ask. What did the monochrome achieve for you, the way this film was directed? The monochrome and just the general way that it was conveyed on the screen. Anything? It made it, I, I can't use the term easier because that's not a word that really applies to this film in any way. But it allowed me to focus more clearly on a broader sense of what was going on. I know what criticism there was of this film was linked in with focusing on the the good German stereotype and uh, and trying to make people feel better about terrible, terrible things. by allowing them to focus on the notion of individual heroes. But it didn't come across that way to me. Are you finished? No. Okay. Because every... Every time I looked at that group of people, and the 
the effect of the monochrome making them appear uniform and all one people. It might sound a bit stupid, but all I could think of them as was a group who were doing the absolute best they could to survive through a horrendous, horrendous period of history and the people who had the resources and the privilege and the education to be able to do something to help that group survive better and give them a better chance. They didn't seem like elevated heroes to me exactly. And I I mean that in a as positive a sense as I can. They seemed like part of that people. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because of the monochrome and because of the way it's shot, it felt historical to me and uh, real and dark and miserable and frightening. And because of the complete absence of colour, apart from in a few technically um, brilliant moments when they uh, brought red into the picture to illustrate a young girl or a candle flame... um, it asked you to ignore the costumes, to ignore the props, ignore even the just the backgrounds. Even though they, they, you know, they they strove for authenticity with all of this. It's monochrome that asks you to look at faces, that asks you to look at the people, and as you say, it puts casts everyone in the same light. It shows that Nazism is self destruction. It is the human race self-destructing. But it's not just that it's black and white. There was Handicam in here. There was Steadicam. This was shaky and immediate and right there. It wasn't just uh, detached and keeping the camera fixed and at a distance. You were right there experiencing this, experiencing the fear and the hiding and the... Anxiety, the crippling anxiety the whole way through. It felt invasive. And John Williams gives this rolling, delicate score uh, with uh, an Israeli violinist helping. And it doesn't sound like Williams at all. It's, it's, it's something different. It's, it's telling a, a, a saga a story and again in it being black and white this there was a clear delineation between evil and good the scene where they raided the luggage was absolutely horrific the um even though nobody was directly being harmed it was the casuality uh, of, of, of the stacking up of everyone's individual items, the depersonalization of absolutely everything that suggested the decisions had already been made and they were just biding their time, moving things along the production line until they could neatly and safely execute and uh, move into pits and burn into ash. The asking them to write their names on the suitcases in chalk as well. It's not stated there, but they mention later on that when groups of people were being sent into the showers, they gave them soap to make it look authentic and so that they would go without argument because it would make sense that they would take soap into the showers. And getting them to write their names on their suitcases means they don't protest when they're taken away because they think it's genuine. 
There's a cunning involved in the mercilessness and the <sighs> pantomime of mercy within the act itself. Uh, Ray Fiennes' character reminded me of Captain Vidal in Pan's Labyrinth. I'm fairly certain Del Toro was channeling him directly and only there in that magnificent movie that I adore I was but I still can't see it all that often I was allowed the coping mechanism of dark fantasy whereas this is utterly uncompromised and itself as a film merciless this is hell in fact, it is worse than hell. Figuratively speaking, in hell, you are going to be surrounded by millions of people who have committed evil acts throughout their lives and are being eternally punished for them. People who are souls that are unforgivable because otherwise they shouldn't be here by rights. Hitler is in hell. Goebbels is in hell. Himmler is in hell, Stalin is in hell, Mussolini is in hell, Pol Pot is in hell, Papa Doc Duvalia is in hell, and soon Donald Trump will be in hell. This is much, much worse than hell because these people are innocent, they have done nothing wrong, and they are being exploited, reviled, terrorized, tortured, murdered, and disposed of in pits without identity, stripped of absolutely everything. It is an evil so great that the hell we dreamed up to balance the equation could barely be imagined. Because there is no punishment that will right this eternal wrong. There is only the sober knowledge of its occurrence, the events that led to it, and the vow to prevent it happening again in our lifetime. Stephen was finishing the dinosaur effects for Jurassic Park while he was trying to get this to work. It was a ridiculous undertaking to do these two in one year. And he understandably got incredibly depressed. Robin Williams, who he'd been friends with through Hook, phoned him every night to tell him 15 minutes of uninterrupted jokes just to keep him going. Mm. The reason that he did them both in the same year was because the studio wouldn't let him make Schindler's List unless he did Jurassic Park first. He theorised because they knew that if he did Schindler's List first, there was absolutely no way he could make Jurassic Park afterwards. He took four years off after that. He didn't work again until 1997 when he did Jurassic Park 2 and his slavery epic. <laughs> You're making it harder on yourself, Steve. Uh, Steve's friend Stanley Kubrick, who at the time was still very much alive, decided not to make a Holocaust film that he'd been considering for a long while. He said of this film that it was about an unusual success in that period. Uh, the Holocaust is about 6 million people who get killed, and Schindler's List was about 600 people who dumped. But that's Stan's philosophy, not mine. Mm. Those are the 600 tiny wins against absolute abominable tyranny, wresting back lives from the jaws of death. After a while of seeing people just indiscriminately killed, you start to see people who somehow survive or somehow escape or through luck or um, occasionally judgment, but almost always luck that gets them out of it. And it feels like you, you grab hold of that, like a sliver of hope each time. There's a, a moment where uh, the, the hinge maker gets dragged outside uh, by Ray Fiennes, uh, who attempts to shoot him in the head with his Luger. It jams up. He clears it. He shoots him again. It jams up again. He tries again. He goes for a different gun. That doesn't work. And that made me feel like... The, the invisible force of Jehovah who was present in Raiders of the Lost Ark turned up and went, no, not this one, click. And just like I allowed myself to entertain that measure of fantasy and said, something is preserving the hinge maker. It's more comforting to imagine hell when these acts exist. It's disturbing to imagine that they don't go to hell. The 
The scene where there's the the crafting of the list corresponds about two-thirds of the way through with Oscar developing compassion and bravery and selflessness. And it's a clear turning point and a desperate relief. Each person stating their name as they come up to to be counted on the list. And it's it follows a scene where they make him and Kingsley are making this list and you've heard all the names so you know that when they say them yes you're on the list because i recognize that name Mm. it's the recognition the seeing them as people yeah it restores identity to them in a way that so far it's been stripped from them over and over and over again yeah this film has a dreadful power in the truest sense of the word it instills one with a powerful dread I don't believe it is possible for Spielberg to make a film more effective in his lifetime. I don't even know why he would want to. This is like a knife to the heart. My personal comfort zone is Captain America. I want to follow the story of someone who is able and imbued and empowered to oppose Nazis of all stripes. Everyone beyond a certain age, I believe, needs to see this film. Unless there is a very solid physical or psychological reason not to. I wish that it had not started a rash of we want to have a Schindler's List 2 prestige Oscar bait type Nazi movie trend. It did, though. And it kept Nazis back in the 1940s. And it prevented people from seeing the rise of it in our age. Mm. Which actually... It kept Nazis foreign. It kept Nazis geographically and historically gated off from us. We weren't scared of them because they were dead and gone and punished. And evil was righted. Captain America did it. Whereas with this, the immediacy of that camera work, the the recognition of the actors in it, even if they're slightly detached by means of black and white and uniforms, made it feel like something that could be relatively current. It's a lot of it is the industrialized elements, the the fact that there's people are driving around in cars. It just there was something about it that felt so present. Mm-hmm. Like I said, everyone needs to see this film. They need to feel trapped by it helpless to prevent the atrocity that they're watching. It is not Coca-Cola like you'd find in the multiplex. It is medicine. It will help you with your historical knowledge, your perspective, and your empathy. Unfortunately for me, all three of these things are already highly sharpened, so the medicine makes them too intense for me to bear. This was practically unbearable we were supposed to be watching it over two nights but i i insisted we carry on and get to the end and get this out of my head tonight because i can't dream unresolved about schindler's list it is deeply disturbing for me to sit with this experience and at the end of it Netflix, because I own this on DVD, not Blu-ray. Netflix advertised during the credits over the graves of the Jewish dead. You might like to watch Cobra Kai, Demolition Man, or Venom. So I contacted them directly on Twitter and said, would you please not do that for this film. And they said absolutely nothing, of course. I always considered this era, this place, this scenario to be hell on earth. The worst thing that we could ever do. 
combined with other genocides of the 19th and 20th century, this refusal to accept humanity and deliberately embracing the monstrous that the Nazis do, was what I prayed I would never see starting to creep back into modern culture. It was back there. It was not able to hurt the people currently in the world. And when that actually began to happen around the globe with the rise of right-wing rhetoric in merciless strongman leaders and their insane followers, I began to realize I was living in an inescapable nightmare. And it hasn't stopped. And it can only be marshaled with facing the facts, being brave and doing what we are asked to eliminate it. This uprising is not tied to one person, but to a movement of adult bullies without a shred of compassion who are finding out that they can get away with increasingly more terrible behavior in an age of misinformation and uncertainty, where lies can overwrite facts and their power fantasies can reshape reality. For the rest of our lives, if we ever have the opportunity to vote democratically in our broken, often very disappointing, two-candidate systems in a way that can diminish the stranglehold of these evil, evil people and potentially prevent the future atrocities that they are just dying to carry out and perhaps help roll back some of what they have done and work to fix these broken systems for the benefit of all, then I implore each and every one of you listening to do so. That is all.